Welcome to Preble Hall, the podcast of the U.S. Naval Academy Museum. My name is John Sherwood, and I'm a historian with the Naval History and Heritage Command. Today, I'm honored to host retired Vice Admiral Cutler J. Dawson. Admiral, Admiral Cutler Dawson graduated from the Naval Academy in 1970. He then went on to serve as a surface warfare officer. His commands including, included the tugboat Malala, the frigate Bronstein, the destroyer Harry W. Hill, the guided missile cruiser Princeton, and cruiser destroyer group 12 Enterprise Battle Group. He also served as commander Second Fleet and Striking Fleet Atlantic. Shore assignments included Director of Operations Division of the Navy Budget Office and Acting Budget Officer of the U.S. Navy. He also served as the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs and Deputy Chief of Naval Operations, Resources, Requirements, and Assessments. From 2004 to 2019, he was President and CEO of the Navy Federal Credit Union. Currently, he is Chairman of the Board of Governors for the Center for Creative Leadership. The title of his recent book is From the Sea to the C-Suite, Lessons from the Bridge to the Corner Office. Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson, welcome to Preble Hall. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Let's start off at the beginning. Why did you attend the Naval Academy? And you have a very interesting anecdote in your book that I read about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's a true story, by the way. Uh, my parents were both officers in the Navy during World War II. Uh, my dad was a Navy pilot, and um, uh, my mom was an officer that supported in, in the administration. Uh, uh, as, when I was growing up with my younger brother, Craig, uh, they talked about us going to the Naval Academy, and and so we did. We both went. Um, I was class of 70, as you mentioned, and he was class of 73. And um, it was just a natural evolution for us. And um, um, I thought about quitting, not going at one time, and um, my mother quit making me breakfast. And uh, so I came to the conclusion that she was sending me a signal, and um, I went down one day and said, well, I am going to go to the Naval Academy. And she said, what would you like for breakfast? So that's how I ended up there. Never looked back. What type of a student were you at the Naval Academy? And did you play any any sports? Where did you graduate was, in your class? Um, I was a varsity tennis player. And um, I like to say between my brother and I, and plebes weren't eligible for varsity when, when we were there, but we seven end stars between the two of us. Um, my brother had six of them and, uh, but I, I had a tremendous experience being on the tennis team. Um, academically, um, I was not at the top of the class. Uh, uh, but I enjoyed my professors. Uh, I had one professor named John Probert that, um, um, I miss him today. He's passed away, but he taught me more about life than, than you could ever imagine. Your first command was of a an ocean-going tugboat, the Malala? Yes. Uh, in the U.S. Navy, after the Vietnam War ended, few, few junior officers had the privilege of commanding a ship at a young age. Uh, Coast Guard officers do that 
that that's part of being in the Coast Guard. But in the Navy, that's that's rarer. Can you tell me about that experience and what you learned? I think without a doubt, it's one of the greatest experiences of my life. Um, I took command at age 27, and then three months later after uh, workups, deployed for six months to the Western Pacific, uh, Korea, the Philippines, uh, uh, the trust territories of the Pacific. Uh, I learned a lot. Um, and my boss at the time uh, was uh, uh, in charge of seven uh, fleet tugs like mine. And uh, I had five years in the Navy. At the time, he had 32. He was His name was Cy Manning. And Cy um, wore a World War II submarine combat patrol pin that he had earned as an enlisted man during World War II. And he was a remarkable man. Um, he used to chew tobacco and smoke a cigar at the same time, uh, but he never spit. And, uh, but you learn quickly. One of the lessons I learned was don't stand downwind of him when you're talking to him. Um, but now <laughs> on a more serious note, on my arrival call, he looked me in the eye and said, I want you to do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. And that's what he did. There was no micromanagement. There was no hand-wringing. It's just, what can I do um, to support you better in your in your command? Tugs are known as being uh, very difficult in rough seas. They're kind of tubby, and they get bounced around a lot. Uh, did you ever hit, hit any storms that you remember? <laughs> oh, yeah. We, we hit a huge... I was escorting... Um, two Fijian and two Korean minesweepers across the Pacific on that deployment. And uh, we ran into a storm uh, uh, not long after we were out of Hawaii, and n- no one um, uh, failed to get sick. And uh, back in those days, we had uh, coded messages. And I, I got a message from the uh, fleet commander in Hawaii. He goes, well, how is it out there? And we coded a mes- message back that said, um, we're okay, but it's no picnic. And, um, his name was Admiral Coogan and he immediately came back and said, I want you to divert, um, to Midway Island until the storm recedes. And the lesson I learned from that is he knew that I was a young, uh, lieutenant and that I was trying my best to fulfill the mission, but he had the authority to, to tell me to, to take a pause and it's okay. And he was wise enough to do that. And, uh, I'll, I'll never forget that. And I've, I've tried to apply that uh, during my career to people that I know are hard charging and they don't want to say no. Uh, but sometimes it's okay to take a pause and, and it's hard. You assume command of the USS Princeton just after it suffered a mine strike in the Persian Gulf in February of 1991. Can you tell us about the damage the ship suffered and how you helped get that ship repaired? And more importantly, deal with with the crew that I imagine was still quite traumatized by that event. You know, that, that was an interesting experience. Uh, uh, first of all, I, I relieved the uh, Captain Ted Hans, class of 67, who was in command when they struck the mines. Um, after the ship returned to Long Beach to, to get its permanent repairs. Um, Captain Hans saved that ship along with his team. 
Um, by all measures, it should have been sunk. But they fought that ship, and and they kept it afloat. And um, he was a, he is a tremendous officer. Um, and the crew the crew had a, had had a tough go, um, but um, they had a great captain, Ted Hunt. And um, so um, I I thought about well, how am I going to approach this? Um, the crew was traumatized a little bit, and and so I. I went. What I did. What I always did. I went to the deck plates and I talked to people. I talked to the crew um, in different environments in their work environment. And I said, "We're going to get this ship repaired, and we're going to be better than ever." And um, I know you've worked hard, but we've got hard work ahead of us. But we're going to get it done. Um, and then I said to them, "And we're going to develop a partnership with the Long Beach Naval Shipyard civilian workers, and we're going to make them part of our team." And not criticize them. And, and for those that are listening that have been in shipyards, you know it's really a tough time. Um, but you can get more things with honey than you can with um, um, uh, screaming at people. And um, we got them on our side, and they they felt like it was their responsibility to help us get that ship back and going. Um, so uh, we did, but. You know, there's always a, a reflash, and um, we we're all set to go, and we were out um, underway, and we had a line shaft bearing problem, and we had to go back into port in Long Beach, <clears throat> and we had two of the best tech reps NAVs had come out to the ship to help with um, the repair and to get it right, but it wasn't going as fast as as I wanted it to, and. Um, so um, the tech rep said uh, we're staying in a real nice hotel in downtown Long Beach. And, and uh, one morning I sent someone over there to gather the things and check them out of the hotel. And um, I told them I went down and saw them. And I said, you know, you're not in the hotel anymore. You've got two staterooms on the ship. And uh, you'll just stay there until we get this thing fixed. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it... <laughs> These guys were good guys, and they just smiled at me, and uh, they go, we'll get it done. And, uh, <laughs> um, and, and then another thing happened that um, there was an article written in one of the trade um, magazines that said uh, Princeton would never be right again, and that uh, the mine damage would had thrown it off kilter, and it just would never uh, sail again like it used to. And uh, I got in touch with the writer and invited him to come out and get underway with us. And he did. And he wrote another story that, that said, I was wrong. Um, this ship is back in commission. It can go, it can do everything it's supposed to do. Um, but, um, I'm a firm believer that when you face a problem, um, don't trade emails with people or, uh, phone calls. Tell them to come in and let's work this and see it together. Uh, it had a great, great effect. And then lastly, the last thing I'll say about this, um, I've always had a theory that I've shared with anyone that will listen to me that's going to command. I tell them that I call it, there, two, there can be two good captains in a row. And don't, what I mean by that is Ted Hans was a terrific captain. And I was able to come in behind him 
and make things better. But I built on what he had done. And you will hear me do nothing but praise for Ted Hans because he deserved it. But a lot of people feel like they got to come in and say, oh, everything was messed up when I got there, and um, but I fixed it. That's not the right approach. Where did the mine, where did the, the ship hit the mine? What, can you describe the damage a bit more? Well, they were in the Persian Gulf, and, and as I understand it, there were two mines that detonated under the ship. Um, and... Mines do the, da- the, the damage because they create a bubble uh, of air um, in the water. And it actually lifted uh, the Princeton up out of the water. And then when that happens, there's no support for the ship like the water gives. And um, lots of bad things happen when, when, when that occurs. And that's what happened to the Princeton. Um, and uh, by the way, um, there was a fellow on the Princeton named Kevin Campbell, who was the chief engineer. Um, it, it's a small world. Um, I had met Kevin um, when I was a lieutenant in Coronado, and he was at Coronado High School. And my friend and I, Bob Natter, would go up and play basketball, pick up basketball games, and he played with us. Hmm. And then fast forward. I go to command of the Harry W. Hill, and he's on there and serves with me. And then when I showed back up on Princeton, uh, he was the chief engineer and one of the people that helped save that ship. You commanded the Enterprise Battle Group during Operation Desert Fox in the Arabian Gulf in 1998, and then during Operation Allied Force in Kosovo in 1999. Can you tell us a little bit about the ship and what it did during those operations? Oh, uh, that, that, that was a whirlwind time. Um, things weren't doing well in the Persian Gulf. And after our workups, we actually left Norfolk and had a 27 knot SOA to get to the Persian Gulf. Um, and I remember getting a phone call from the CNO, Jay Johnson, a uh, satellite phone call and said, you got to get there. They, they need you there. Uh, we don't know when things are going to happen. And um, your mission is to get there as quickly and as fast as you can. If anybody along the line interferes with that, let me know. So, you know, that was very nice of CNO Johnson. It gave me the confidence that uh, it gave me a... <laughs> a picture on what I was supposed to do. Um, so our challenge was we had to get there um, and then be ready to fight uh, when called upon. And that's what happened. Um, we, 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 we got the orders that we were going to launch an attack. And the previous battle group in there had also gotten the same order, but they've been called, called off. Um, and um, but we got it, and we did a simultaneous T lam and uh, air wing strike. Um, and there's a couple things that um, I remember uh, about that. Um, one, I was in awe of the air wing and the aviators in the air wing and, and their risk analysis and how they could take targets, um, plan their missions, think about all the different things that could go right or could go wrong. 
and get to the target. Uh, then the second thing um, was the accuracy of our T-LAMs. Uh, I mean, it was a massive T-LAM launch from all the ships in the battle group, um, and it everyone came off just right. Um, and then <laughs> I chuckle about this now, but after the after the first strike of the air wing, it was night and and um, everybody landed safely. Everybody that went on the mission came back, and that was a big deal to me. Um, so I passed the word uh, down to the air wing that I wanted the aviators that were on the mission to get on the satellite telephone and call their spouses and tell them that they were okay. Um, I probably break, broke some rules with that, but you know, it was all over CNN. It was all over the TV. Um, and I, I was thinking about those spouses and how they would be on the edge about what had happened. Uh, you know, it had, um, you know, it had an electric effect in the air wing and if they go, dang, the Admiral cares about us, cares about our families. And, uh, uh, anyway, it, uh, I'm going to tear up if I keep going. <laughs> Is there anything more you want to say about those operations or can we move to when well, you were, I, I, yeah. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you another funny antidote. Okay. Um, it's not funny. It's, We had a lot of press come out to the uh, ship um, after the operation. They wanted to interview the aviators that flew. They they uh, they were interested in everything. Um, and one of our F-18 pilots was a lady named Kendra Williams. And I saw Kendra one day, and I go, well, um, you've been doing a lot of interviews with the press. How's it been going? And um, she said, it's been going great, but I'm not going to do any more. And I go, well, why is that? And she said, um, I have a chemistry with the, the male pilots in my squadron that I don't want to lose. And I don't want to be the one that's given all the interviews because I'm a female. So I'm not going to do any more. Hmm. And I go, that makes sense to me. Uh, terrific. And then as things go, I get a call that night on the satellite phone um, from the chief of Naval information, he said, we're going to send Dave secretary of the Navy wants to send David Martin out to uh, interview Kendra Williams. And um, uh, I said, well, no, that's not going to happen. She's not giving any more interviews. Um, <laughs> he, he goes, well, what am I going to tell um, secretary Danzig? And I go, well, tell him that cover said it's not going to happen. They're not going to have an interview. Um, what he didn't know at the time was that um, Secretary Danzig um, and I played basketball together uh, when we were back in D.C. And um, uh, apparently Chinfo came to see the secretary and, and, and his remark was, well, the cutler says it's not a good idea. We're not going to do it. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was the end of it. But, but the serious thing that I'm trying to convey is how remarkable Kendra Williams was that she just wasn't thinking about herself. She was thinking about um, all her shipmates. You were director of the Navy's Senate Liaison Office and later served as the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. What is legislative affairs, and how do you remain nonpartisan while acting 
as an advocate for the Navy on Capitol Hill. And how is your job different from traditional Navy advocacy groups, such as the Navy League? You know, it's a great question. Um, I have a smile on my face right now. Um, I, those two tours were terrific, the Senate and then as the Chief of Legislative Affairs. And, and I had some wonderful takeaways. One, there are lots of really good staffers on Capitol Hill that work there. They're very dedicated. They work hard. Um, you only hear about the ones that aren't so good. Uh, but the ones that are good are just terrific. Um, and in the Senate job, uh, I'm going to get around to answering question. We like to say in legislative affairs, we don't lobby the Congress. We provide them information. Now it's probably the same thing, but that's what we say. And uh, but in the Senate, I would travel with the members of the Senate when they went overseas. And um, my favorite person to travel with was Senator John McCain. Uh, but I tra- travel with uh, Senator uh, uh, Lieberman and Senator John Warner and Senator George Mitchell, senators from both parties, and the Navy in legislative affairs, tries to provide equal information to both parties, no matter who's in the majority, um, because majorities change. And um, the objective is to get everyone's support to the extent you can on the programs that the Navy is, um, is about. Um, and we were meticulous about that. Um, uh, and our opinions were the opinion we we had our own political opinions, but the opinions that we offered to people were those of what the programs in Navy wanted and what they wanted to support. And I thought it worked very well. Um, I will tell you a funny anecdote, though. Um, I'm head of the Senate office, and a young staffer comes to see me one day, and he he was from California, a senator in California, and he said, "My senator wants me to." Uh, you to find out why the Navy won't support a movie that one of our constituents uh, wants to film. And I go, well, tell me about the movie. He goes, well, it's about a mutiny on a submarine. Oh. And I, I, I think it later became Crimson Tide. But um, I looked at him and I go, well, of course the Navy's not going to support that. That's ridiculous. It, it just would never happen. And um, remember, he's a young staffer and he goes, my senator, he looked at me and said, my senator told me you might say that. And she wanted you to know that if you didn't come across with what we want to do uh, with our constituents, she will have you sent to the worst duty station in the world that the Navy has. <laughs> and so I looked at him and I smiled. I go, well, I'm already here in Washington, D.C. Uh, there's no worse place for a Navy guy to be than right here. Any place she sends me to will be a big improvement. And um, especially if she has me sent back to sea duty, um, his mouth dropped. He walked away. Never heard from him. <laughs> but um, that's funny. Um, the point I like to make on that, though, is there's sometimes when you don't want to just be there around the bush, you just say no, we're not going to do that, or yes, we can't. It's better if you can say yes, but um, don't leave people in doubt. Uh, let them know where you stand. Now, sometimes you got to take some blowback with that, but um, that's what they pay you for. How many staff members did you have in the big job as chief of 
OLA? Oh, I had about um, oh, a total of about 40 or 50. And the, the way we were organized, you know, we had a, we had a submarine officer that looked at submarine programs. We had an aviation uh, officer that looked after aviation program. And they, they would provide further detail to the staffers um, on the information that, um, that they needed. And um, uh, I thought the system worked very well. Um, and once again, uh, you don't always get everything you ask for, but um, at least they hear what you have to say. And um, I remember I was working in Navy budget one time and there was what they call a reclama session where we had taken money away from this Admiral's program. And, and um, I was a captain and I'd just been selected for Admiral, hadn't put it on. We didn't give him his money back. And I got a call from his EA later that day and goes, the Admiral wants to know that, uh, he really appreciated the session today with you and Bob Panic, the senior civilian. Um, and I go, well, you know, does he know that he didn't get what he wanted? And and the chief staff said, he does, but you listened to what he had to say um, and made your decision. And he said, that's all he can ask for. Uh, for those of the, on the line who remember old Navy budget days, um, you could get berated in those reclama sessions and uh, just beat down. But uh, Bob Panic and I didn't take that approach. We we listened to what that people say and um, did what we could. Was that Navy budget job, was that your springboard into Navy Federal, first as a board member and later as president and CEO? Yeah, it was. Uh, actually, uh, I'd had captain command of the Princeton out in Long Beach, and I came, I came back to be the chief of the Senate office. And I was looking for uh, something to volunteer and do uh, to kind of expand my horizons. And um, a friend of mine recommended that I be a volunteer official at Navy Federal Credit Union, um, and that's what I did. Um, I will point out that the volunteers at Navy Federal who then go on to be board members, which I did, uh, are uncompensated. Um, it's a give back that they give to the membership of Navy Federal. Uh, and in, and they are asked to govern uh, where Navy Federal goes. Um, I never thought I'd go to work there. Um, but as it happened, uh, when I was set to retire from the Pentagon, uh, the current then current CEO, of Navy Federal decided to retire on short notice. And so it couldn't have been a better scenario. And I, I interviewed for the position and I got it. What is a credit union and what are the advantages of membership in a credit uh, union? That's a great question. Um, a credit union is a cooperative. Um, and Navy Federal started 90 years ago with seven people that worked in the Department of the Navy, and they pulled together their resources, their savings of $400. And um, the cooperative has savers and borrowers, and that's how they started. And they would, um, I think they had a, a part-time office person of one person. And, um, but they they lent out that $400 and then they grew. Um, 
And, uh, but it's a cooperative and it's owned by the membership. Um, and, and you're a member probably, and, uh, you know that you can join for $5 and that goes into your savings account and you get it back anytime you want. Um, and the theory is you, as I said, you've got people that need to want to save and are in a position to save. And then people that in a position they need to borrow car, uh, borrow money to buy their first car or, uh, buy their first house. And, um, it's worked pretty well for Navy federal. Um, uh, and then I'll tell you another thing about Navy Federal. I, of course, I could go on forever. I love Navy Federal, but um, it's 90 years old, and it's never had a layoff in 90 years of people that work there. I believe when I was there that uh, you want your employees to be loyal to you, but in return, you got to be loyal to them. And Navy Federal has lived that for 90 years, and it served them well. What are the advantages of membership, especially for military families, DOD civilians, those types of people? Well, uh, one, um, we like to say, we like to say at Navy Federal that uh, we serve where you serve. Uh, there are branches around the world, in Europe and Asia and into the States. It's, it's a nice thing that when you're deployed, you can walk into a financial institution to help you uh, with your issues at home or whatever you need to do. Um, and it also, um, uh, on a practical side, um, uh, we, the loans are well-priced, uh, the savings rates are, are well-priced, uh, and if Navy Federal makes a, a loan to you, they try to make it for the right reasons, for the right dollar amount, that is right for your financial situation and not get you in over your head, so to speak. Um, and you can trust them, but that's the real, the real value of, I think of Navy federal, uh, the membership trust Navy federal that they're going to do the right thing by them. And, um, but again, I, <laughs> you're talking to an advocate who's lived there. I was there 14 years. I've seen the people that work there. And I see how much they care about um, the membership and and that they start off every conversation of uh, what is the right thing to do for this member. Yeah, your overseas presence is particularly important. Having lived overseas, I remember going into a German bank and asking for 50-cent euro coins so I could get my laundry done. And <laughs> they said we're sorry, you're not a member of this bank, go home. And uh, by the same token, when I, when I went into a Navy Federal office, of course, I am a member, uh, no problem. You want euros, you want dollars, uh, they're right there to serve you. If you need to get an account, you can get an account uh, living abroad, which is very hard uh, in the local economy. So one of the things I was blown away about also as, as a federal employee is that Navy Federal has been basically backstopping the whole of DOD in the event of a shutdown. Yep. Can you tell us about that program? Yeah. Um, actually, uh, it first occurred, I think it was probably 2012. I was there, and there was talk of a government shutdown. But with a new twist that it was going to include military not to be paid. That had not 
been done before. And um, uh, having worked in Navy budget, uh, I didn't like that. Uh, I thought they were using the military as, as pawns for what the political arguments were at the time. Um, so I talked to our CFO and I go, what if we, what if we backstop all the direct deposit for all the, um, folks that, um, have it with Navy federal. Um, and by the way, let's do the civilians too, not just the active duty, but the civilians because Navy federal has got a, uh, a large loyal, uh, uh, civil servant, uh, membership. And she did the numbers and she said, we can do that. Um, now, at the time, it was unknown territory, but we didn't know whether we were going to be able to get the money back. Uh, we thought we could, but uh, um, it, it was a little bit of a risk. Um, and um, we put the word out that we would cover it. And, and since it was the first time that something like that had happened, it went electric. It just it shot through the fleet that Navy Federal was going to cover our pay. I remember, and, and as it turned out on that event, the government didn't shut down and we didn't have to cover the pay. But, and we found that out on our Friday and Monday, uh, I was visiting a branch in Yuma, California at the Marine Corps air station. And, um, this young third class petty officer, female came up to me and she said, um, I heard you here. And I just want you to know how much it meant to me that Navy federal was going to cover my pay last week. Uh, I'm a single mom, and I was desperate. I didn't know how I was going to make it uh, with no paycheck. And then Navy Federal came out and announced that um, um, that they were going to cover it. And she started to cry. And um, I asked her very politely, I said, uh, please stop crying or I'm going to start crying. But it really hit me how much it meant to people. And also, um, you know, we've got a lot of young people that live paycheck to paycheck. And also, I don't like to see them as political pawns uh, in whatever, whatever games are being played on the Hill. That was the origin of it, and it's continued. And Mary McDuffie, the current CEO, has continued it, and we're very proud that we do it. And now other institutions are starting to catch on and, and do that as well. So the that w- answer your question? So the way it works is if your paycheck, whether you're DOD civilian contractor or uniform military, is directly deposited into Navy Federal in the event of a shutdown, you will receive an interest-free loan for the amount of that direct deposit until the shutdown ends, in which at that point the government pays your back pay and the, and Navy Federal is made whole. Correct. Okay. That's the way it works. And uh, But there's wrinkles in it now in that um, there's increased regulation. And um, um, there are a lot more I's in, that you've got to dot and T's you've got to cross, uh, even though you want to do a good thing. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure that makes sense to anybody, but it does to those who have been in the banking world. And... Um, it's no longer sufficient enough that you're trying to do the right thing. You got to document the whole world and, and, and not miss any crossing any T's or dotting any I's. The Navy federal is not a small potatoes affair anymore. It, it under your tenure, it went from 22.8 billion to over a hundred billion 
It went from 2.5 million members to more than 8 million. Today, it is the world's biggest credit union with $166 billion in assets. If it were a commercial bank, it would rank in, in the top 25 in terms of assets. Sir, why did you decide to expand Navy Federal and, and especially expand? It used to be just for the for for uniform Navy and Marine Corps plus uh, Navy and Marine Corps civil servants, and then it, it it expanded much more broadly in terms of membership. Can you? Why did you do that? And and. Yeah, explain who who can be a member of Navy Federal now. Well, one, I'm smiling because I love this question. Um, to answer the, the last part, who can be a member now? Anybody, civilian or military, and DOD or their family members. Um, and the latest um, a few years ago is that veterans, any veteran can join. Hmm. Uh, if you go back into the history of Navy Federal it, that you alluded to, there was a time when enlisted people could only join when they were deployed overseas. Hmm. They couldn't join in the U.S. Um, and the membership criteria for the credit union have evolved over the years. And I just evolved it a little further because when I went there and I just retired from the, uh, from the Navy, um, I said to myself, why don't we have Army and Air Force members Everything we do in the service now is joint. So let's get them aboard and give get and and see where that takes us. And uh, so I'll tell you one. I'm having my morning meeting one day, and I I I, I talked to the my senior executives about expanding to the Army and Air Force, and I get no eye contact at the table. Everybody's looking down, and I go, "Ooh, ooh." And then one of the long-term executives there, who was very brave, he, he spoke up. He said, Cutler, um, it's hard for them to think about serving more people when we are not providing adequate service um, to the people we have. And I thought about that, and I thought about when I'd gone to the deck plates to visit branches, I'd go to San Diego, and the teller lines would be out the door into the parking lot. And I'd walk around headquarters to see the call center, and on our tote boards, the wait times to answer a phone were 45 minutes. And I said, I got it. We got to do something about that. And then we'll think about the expanding uh, to the other services. So we went to the board and we said, we got to spend more money. Uh, remember the, the Navy, um, This you asked me what I learned from Navy budget. In the Navy, you've got a top line. And you got to do everything under that top line. Well, when you run a financial institution, you're not constrained by that. The more you do and the more revenue you generate, the more things you can do. So we we said um, to the board, we got to spend money to make some money. And we got we added branches. One year we added 35 branches in one year. And we we worked we added more people for the call center. We got the wait down wait times down from 45 minutes to 45 seconds. And guess what happened? People did business with us. We generated more revenue. We could do more things. Um, we could hire more people. Um, and then we found out 
the Army and the Air Force people that came in, they go, we like this. You serve where we serve. And um, now the Army is the number two source of uh, new members for our Navy Federal Credit Union, second only to the Navy and the Marine Corps. And and then lastly, um, I did it because I thought that – the bigger you were, the more leverage you could have and the more services you could provide and also the more opportunities you could have for your employees to get more employees to have a good place to work. That's a long answer, but um, it worked, and um, uh, I'm very proud of it. What percentage of your staff are military dependents or spouses? Oh, that's a good question, and it's evolved over time. If you asked me that question when I first got there, it'd be a lot more spouses than uh, um, uh, uh, the percentage would be higher. But as we've grown, we've brought in people with, in, in some cases, with no military background. But it's amazing the way they adopt to the culture at Navy Federal. And it's amazing and how proud they are to serve men and women in uniform. But then as we grow, there's not just military people. And, and so they're proud of all the people that they serve. But it starts with the employees, and uh, they get it. And, and Navy Federal tries to treat them well, and in return, they, they treat the members well. One of the joys of my life when we expanded the branches and opportunities was we gave Navy spouses the chance to have a job. Mm-hmm. And and let's say they worked in a branch overseas and their their spouse got reassigned in the States, we had a place where they could return and go to work too. And they could have a career along with their military spouse. So um, uh, I had one lady when I was at Navy Federal, her husband was a retired master chief. She had 23 of her relatives that worked at Navy Federal. And, including her husband, who was retired. And um, her name was Nell Ignacia. And and Nell's people, that her family, um, if they had a, an employee issue, she dealt with it. They never had an issue. It was great. It's so important for spouses because it's so hard with all the military moves to, to have a career. And this is one organization, and there are others, of course, but it's one organization where the spouse can continue with his or her career wherever they are in the military yeah. universe. And, and it can be, we have bases in some very remote places. And by the way, guess who understands the membership? What better person than a spouse to understand the demands of the membership? Correct. And um, I'll tell you one, one funny story, though. I used to visit branches, and, and I'd ask, of course, um, what their spouses did. And a lot of them would say, well, um, mine's a master chief. And I, I remember saying to one lady employee that told me her husband was a master chief, and I go, you know, I've always viewed master chief as godlike people. Um, to reach master chief is really an accomplishment. And she just smiled at me. She says, well, they're not godlike at home. so there are critics of of credit unions and one of those critics is 
are banks. Banks claim that credit unions uh, have an unfair competitive advantage because of their tax-exempt status. Right. Is this true? And uh, should credit unions remain tax-exempt? I think of it this way. Um, there's a space for for-profit banks and for not-for-profits like maybe Federal. And if the for-profits think we have such a great advantage, they can convert to be a credit union. I don't think any have. Um, the difference is, think of it as a stool. Maybe Federal is like a two-legged stool. It's got the membership uh, and the employees. A bank has uh, their customers, their employees, and then they got the shareholders. Credit unions can take that money that they generate through the tax exemption and plow it back into better rates uh, and better support for their membership. Um, but remember I told you the people that govern the credit union get no compensation. Uh, they do it because they believe in the mission of uh, of the credit union. Um, and there's a difference there. Um, so, you know, I had to testify one year, uh, on the Hill about the tax exemption. And, um, I explained it to him kind of like that. And, you know, not a peep afterwards that, uh, people realize that, um, it makes sense. Um, so I don't get too hot and bothered over that. So, um, and your employees make considerably less money than bank executives. They don't receive stock options, for example. Correct. Correct. That's correct. Uh, so That's that correct. Um, and, um, but everybody needs to be paid a fair wage. I mean, I, I don't begrudge that to anybody. Um, and uh, I, I've always said that I'm, deep to, I'm kind of defer, um, uh, divergent here a little bit. There's three things that you should know on whether you're happy in what you're doing. One, do you feel like you're adequately compensated for the work that you're doing? Two, do you enjoy the work that you're doing? And three, do you feel valued for the work that you're doing uh, by your peers, by your superiors, and by the people that work for you? Uh, and if you have all three, you're in a great place. Uh, and if you have two out of three, you might be in a great place too. Uh, but that's the way I've kind of always thought through things. Do you have ATMs on aircraft carriers and larger uh, larger combatant ships? We do not. We, we, we toyed with that once upon a time uh, with the cooperation of the Navy, but uh, it, um, uh, it, it turned out to be not necessary. I, now, I'm dated now because I retired from the Navy coming up on 20 years ago, but they used to have a system where the sailors could put money in and draw it out for shipboard purchases if they wanted to. But now I think they used to just use cards to do that, but I, I'm not sure. Um, but, you know, more and more things now can be done online. And now sailors have access to online on a lot of the big deck platforms that they, that, um, they can do they can go on our website. They can do everything they need to do. I remember from my at sea days, you don't need a lot of money at sea. What are the two or three biggest financial pitfalls for a service person, whether they're a 
an E1 or a midshipman here at the academy or junior officer or even someone more senior? I think they've been the same forever. Um, don't spend more than you make. Uh, um, be judicious about what you buy and what you do. Um, and have a plan, a financial plan. Um, and it's all relative. I remember as an ensign, my base pay was $404 a month. But the way you didn't spend a lot of money on sea duty. And so I saved money every month. Um, uh, and you got to put some aside and you got to have an emergency fund. Um, and a lot of people struggle with that. Um, and, uh, they just have to take a step back and say, what am I spending my money on? And what's be- really best for me? I will tell you though, that I'm, I may be a little too harsh on that. When I was at Navy federal, uh, one day my wife said, uh, um, you know, we're going to this thing down in D.C. Do you think we could pay for parking tonight instead of parking in a free zone and walking six blocks to the event? And I go, oh, okay. And then later in my tenure at Navy Federal, she said, you know, you're the CEO of the largest credit union in the world. Um, um, maybe we ought to do valet parking. <laughs> 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 and, and I, I, I uh, sometimes I agreed and sometimes I did. But uh, the, what I'm trying to say is um, the approach that I took in Navy Federal, by the way, this is a divergence of what you're talking about. It was the mem- It's the members' money. And I asked my employees when it came to expenses, approach it as if it was your own money, and would you make that decision <clears throat> if you were spending your own money for this? Um, and then that's what the decision that everybody's got to make and uh, their finances. Um, make, a, make a decision on where you want to spend your money and, and live within your means. That, that's the advice that I would give. Well, with that, this is Preble Hall.